0: Born and raised in Sydney, Australia, Hetty McKinnon is a Chinese Australian cook and food writer. A James Beard Foundation finalist, she's the author of five cookbooks, including Neighborhood to Asia with Love and her most recent cookbook, Tenderheart: an ode to her late father. Hedy is the editor and publisher of the multicultural food journal, Peddler, and the host of the magazine's podcast, The House Specials. She's a recipe contributor to sites like the New York Times and Bon Appetit, as well as a Salad Aficionado, Mother, and Community Builder. But we'll get into all of that. Welcome to Morning
1: Person Newsletter, Hedy. Oh, hi, Leslie. It's really nice to be here. I'm so excited
0: to have you here. And I actually, I feel like I need to start with a confession. So I we're speaking right now over video. And you're in New York, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. So I just ate breakfast. And every morning for breakfast, I make eggs with, like, An obscene amount of chili oil on them. (laughs) Truly obscene. And I was rushing this morning and I didn't have time to brush my teeth. I like threw on a cute lipstick, but sat down and I'm kind of using the video to be like, do I have chili oil in my teeth? But I felt like if anybody understood that, it would be you. (laughs) I understand. I understand
1: the chiral <laughs> obsession.
0: Yes, and maybe also you can allay my fears about making it. I feel like every time I see a recipe for it, it was into Asia with love, and then there's another one in Tender Heart. Yeah, and I always feel like Hetty's telling me I can do it, but I'm I'm nervous. Have you made it, Leslie? No, I haven't. I buy jars that are 32 ounces because I go through so much of it.
1: Wow. Look, I think there are so many different types of chili oil. And I think every chili oil is going to taste different. Um, I actually have, I, actually a couple of days ago, I was in a panic because I went to my fridge and I always usually have many, many jars of either my everything oil or my umami mm-hmm. crisp, which is my everything oil 2.0 that's in Tender Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and and packed it, with it, mushrooms. It, it, it has mushrooms for the umami. Yeah. But I had given all, it all away. Like I'd made all these jars and I'd given them, I made these like tiny little mason jars and I'd given them all away and I had nothing left. And I got into such a panic. But I went into my pantry, I have a high pantry, and I found a bottle of Logan Ma. So I was so relieved. But normally I do have several versions of chili oils in my fridge for different occasions that is incredible truly a true inspiration to my chili oil obsession but I I think you should definitely make one and you can tailor it to you know your likings whether you want Mm -hmm. it incredibly spicy or more aromatic um Mm -hmm. you know maybe I love all the sediment I actually love all the little bits in the crispy bits so you can kind of customize that but yeah that could be a different
0: mm. podcast altogether <laughs> And I'm aware that I've fully derailed us because the thing that I wanted to start talking to you about was your beautiful cookbook, Tenderheart. And Tenderheart is it's all of your cookbooks do feel deeply personal. A lot of them have these sort of narrative elements in them where you're opening up and you're talking about family or community building, but this one is so much about you growing up and your life at home and your family of origin. And I was wondering if you could just share a
1: little bit about
0: what role food and cooking played in your life growing up.
1: It played a huge part. Um, obviously, my mum is a massive cook, but she's kind of elderly now, so doesn't cook as much. But it was really all my childhood memories are uh, of her cooking or preparing food for the future or freezing, you know, sitting on the, the floor in our kitchen. Um you know, kind of methodically bashing um, her minced fish because she had to do this motion a certain number of times to get it the right texture. And my mum was so dedicated to creating beautiful meals for her family, but also doing things the right way. And I think for her it was definitely a creative expression. I didn't understand any of this at the time. And and really as a kid I, I really thought, why is she always cooking? You know, like I was being... <laughs> brought up in Australia and had a very different life and childhood um, to what she grew up in. I think um, it was, now I look back and say this is, this was her, food was her outlet. It was the way, the mm. only way she really knew how to express herself and to do something creative because she is a very creative person. Um, but she grew up in China as, um, you know, a daughter, you know, the daughters weren't seen as very worthwhile, you know, in Chinese families, mm. China. And so she didn't have any opportunities. She stopped going to school at 14. She had to focus on trying to get out of China, trying to find a way to somewhere else. Um, so her, her life was just so different to mine, um, but she really kind of threw everything into cooking for her family and so that's kind of the framework of which I grew up in and I think I talk a lot a lot about that in a lot of my work but I'm more into Asia with Love um, and then my dad and I never really considered the impact that he had on my life um, until I really wrote Tender Tenderheart actually because I loved mm. him at such a young age. Um, I you were 15 or 16? 15, 15 mm-hmm. and Um, My life just kind of irrevocably changed um, and in ways that I didn't really understand until now, probably. But my dad worked at the produce markets and he um, was a banana monger. That was his trade. Mm -hmm. But um, we ate everything except for bananas. We had a lot of bananas in the house, but we just could not look at another banana. (laughs) You know, everything was just so seasonal, you know, because he Mm -hmm. would go to work and he would go around and collect you know, the stone fruit just as they come in, the cherries just as they come in, Mm -hmm. the mangoes. um, And just our house was just full of food, like crates and boxes of food everywhere. And I just thought, you know, every child thinks that that's normal. You know, you think that's that's normal to have not bags of, you know, now I go to the grocery Mm -hmm. store and buy four apples, Mm -hmm. but it would be a box of apples. Um, It was just Mm -hmm. very abundant and that's, kind of the world I grew up in, and we mm-hmm. I always loved, you know, vegetables and fruits, and we didn't even question eating vegetables when we were young. It was just so much part of our life. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the the foundations of mm-hmm. um, food in my life. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, didn't want to be in food. Like, I didn't, like, I, I wasn't like a 15-year-old thinking, I want to be a cook or I want to write cookbooks that was not where my interests lay at all. It sounds like it was just, yeah, so deeply part of you. Exactly. Like it's like Mm -hmm. when I say, um, I said recently, I don't know if I say it in the book, but I felt like vegetables and food is like a part of my soul. And so Mm -hmm. now, like you mentioned before, about how my books are personal. And for me, like, I don't know if I'd even write cookbooks if they didn't have, a narrative and a story because for Mm -hmm. me food is the way i make sense of my my life and the things that i've experienced the things that i've seen the things that i've gone through um food is the way it's like an anchor that um helps me understand a lot of the things, like Into Asia With Love. It was like this exploration of my two cultures that I grew up with and trying to understand, you know, the ways that they're different and how they can come together in food. And in Tender Heart for me, like, if I'm going to be really honest, like when I first started writing the book, I thought it was going to be a book about just vegetables Very, you know, very, you know, like because you know, my my book, "Tasia with Love," was um, quite a intense book to promote and to talk about um, because it, at the time, it was it and it was just by coincidence, but it came out um, Mm -hmm. at a time where there was a lot of Asian hate and it was Mm -hmm. you know right during COVID and um, you know a month after. You know, those six spa workers were murdered. And it was just a very intense time to promote, to be promoting a book about Asian identity, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really exhausted at the end of that process. And I remember I spoke to my Australian publisher because my book's still originate in Australia. And I said, I want to do just a really joyous book about vegetables, about just mm-hmm. my, my favourite vegetables. And she's like, that sounds great. You go and do that. Um but when i started i'm sorry
0: <laughs> that's okay the reality of new york could you hear that <laughs> Welcome <Yeah. to> <laughs>
1: Um, But yeah, when I started working on the book, the story that naturally came out was this story about my vegetable origin story. Why do I love vegetables? Why are they so important? (laughs) Do you want me just to talk through all of that? Honestly,
0: sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if it's too loud that we can't hear you, but...
1: As long as you can hear me, that's fine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, when I started working on Tender Heart, the, mm-hmm. the story that came out was really my vegetable foundation story. Like, why mm-hmm. do I love vegetables so much? Why do they play such a big part of my life? Um, why have I clung, I, I clung so tightly to them? Um, because, I mean, I'm vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for many decades. but it's really vegetables are like my muses in the way Mm. Um, you can be, you know, there are many types of vegetarians They don't all have to love vegetables. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's like vegetables are so much a part of the way I live and think about food. So the story ended up being about, you know, the, the loss of my dad and the role that he played in my life. And really before that, this book um, I hadn't really been brave enough to think about him in any way extensively Wow because it still really hurts and like I hurt it hurts talking about it but mm-hmm. um, it's it's a process that helps me heal so writing mm. that book helped me heal um, in terms of the unresolved, you know, grief that I had and my feelings of loss that I'd just kind of quashed away. So mm-hmm. it was um, an incredible experience. And I think mm-hmm. at the end of it, you know, a lot of people might not know that that's kind of the narrative of, of Tender Heart. But at the end, I think I've never written a more joyous book. You know, it's never, I've never mm-hmm. written um, recipes that are so free and Mm -hmm. just joyous and have so much um, life and spirit in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I was subconsciously in a lot of the recipes, but I was subconsciously celebrating and Mm honouring a lost soul. And that's a huge responsibility. But I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I just feel so happy when I, you know, Mm. open this book and I read the recipes and it's a very different type of vegetable book um, to what's on the market.
0: I'm so happy that you pointed out that this book, it does, because when you first started saying, you know, I wanted to write this joyous book about vegetables, my initial reaction was, this is a joyous book about vegetables. Mm. You, of course, you explore and you begin the book talking about the pain of losing your father and how this, it was on a New Year's and it changed your life forever. And you talk about this dichotomy between other People celebrating New Year's Eve and your family going through this immense pain. And then there are so many beautiful memories that are imbued in the book of your father that it just becomes this celebration where you're talking about the after school snacks that he would make for you and these crates of vegetables that he would leave all around the house and how you would bicycle through the neighborhood giving out vegetables to your neighbors. And it ultimately does feel like this, this celebration, this joyous book that it maybe had its origins in immense pain, but it, reading it and, you know, it literally has a smiley face on the cover, I think, in both the Australian and the American.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, and um, mm-hmm. the, the face represents my father. I mean, I, I don't know mm. if uh, it's a very I mean, the, the whole thing is just so um, symbolic, but it's, it's symbolic of um not only him but my life and my memories and and um that's the way I express the best you know when I Mm -hmm. um when I'm telling a story like food to me is always a story um every Mm -hmm. recipe that I create is a story in some way that has parts of myself in there um and i'm always drawing from memory and experience and something that someone told me that i remember and um, things that i've eaten and smells um Mm. and i think that's always a part of the story of a recipe so i think it is you're right it is it feels like a celebration um the cover the australian cover has a banana as the mouth um Mm doesn't make sense to people when you first see it you have to read the story to understand what the banana represents um Mm but the American cover has a beautiful summery yellow zucchini but it does Mm -hmm. there is a real sense of joy and celebration in the book and and that represents not only me you know celebrating the life of my father who I lost but it also is this celebration of um vegetables which honestly mm-hmm. I, don't, I wouldn't be here doing what i do mm. it wasn't for vegetables and and um wanting to show people all the different ways they can be a part of your life um mm-hmm. I think that for me also like the book after i wrote it i realized hey it's it's actually a really different vegetable book to other vegetable books on the market and and why is that um and i thought well i think it's because I chose to represent vegetables that are a part of my life as a Chinese Australian person Mm -hmm. um, who has lived in different parts of the world. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And every chapter, just for people who haven't gotten it yet, is divided by theme of vegetables so you have it
1: like it very distinctly sort of is an ode to a separate vegetable it is i mean it's so Mm -hmm. fun i just absolutely love doing it Mm -hmm. um some people ask me you know how did you choose the 22 vegetables and it's like i didn't really have to choose they kind of just chose me um they're Mm -hmm. the ones that came to me but there are chapters about taro and there's chapters about ginger and there's a chapter about Mm -hmm. seaweed and they're not You know, vegetables you'd you'd probably see in every run-of-the-mill vegetable book, but I really wanted to include those because they felt really true to who I am Mm -hmm. as a person, and I wanted to represent that in this book. Um, I think that so often Chinese food gets represented, or Chinese people get represented a certain way in the food industry. I remember Mm -hmm. very early on in my career, I was at a Writers' Festival, and in Australia, and someone um, in the crowd stood up and said, I don't understand how you could be vegetarian and Chinese at the same time, because mm. there are no vegetarian dishes in Chinese cooking. That is absolutely how she <laughs> understood. I mean, it was not something it was. No. It was just how she saw Chinese food. And so I think ever since that time, there's been a part of me that's wanted to rewrite that narrative, to say, "I'm mm. proudly Chinese, I'm proudly Australian, and this is how I cook, and it's vegetarian mm-hmm. and it's vegetable focused, and i'm just this is a different story about vegetables. This is how
0: mm.
1: a person that has lived my life cooked vegetables um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, to me, you know, that's the other part of this book is just giving, veg, you know, giving vegetables a different look and a different feel and
0: mm-hmm. making
1: it just as valid as other vegetable books out there. You know, it's not a farming vegetable book and it's not about mm-hmm. shopping from the farmer's markets, which is beautiful also, but it's not mm-hmm. um, it's not my reality, you know.
0: Yes, that, even that approach to seasonality. Because I was looking, I'm obsessed with cookbooks. I used to, you know, write about them and cover them at P 52, and clearly they're one of my favorite types of books to read cover to cover, um, which is why I was so immediately drawn to your cookbooks. And that's what i love i was looking at the cookbooks that are on my shelf that are primarily vegetable driven or vegetarian cookbooks and so many of them are you know cooking for fall spring summer winter mm-hmm. instead of this one which it sort of acknowledges the way that we cook and shop and you know you write in it and you say yes i grew up completely eating seasonal dishes but the fact is that we're not only eating broccoli you know in in the fall like we're eating it all year round. All year round.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did want to um you know, like now being um having three children, having a family of my own, like I, I recognise that like I do shop at the farmers markets. I like, I do try and mm-hmm. go every weekend. Um but I can't ever I also live in a, a small New York City apartment and I, I can't mm-hmm. ever shop enough for the entire week. And I'm always supplementing from my local supermarket which is nothing mm-hmm. fancy. Um, but it's like it feels like, even though it's in Brooklyn, it feels like a big suburban supermarket. And what I wanted mm-hmm. to do, really like make vegetables um, egalitarian for everyone, and just to not. Mm-hmm. You know, my approach is not um, oh, only buy, only eat tomatoes in the summer. I will eat a tomato mm-hmm. in winter if I feel like it, um, because it's for me. It's more about eating vegetables rather than eating vegetables. Mm-hmm. That only, certain times of the year um i also think it's like it's a little bit elitist to say you can only shop you know seasonally because it's it's expensive sometimes and you not know, people just some people in, around the world just don't have access to farmers mm-hmm. markets and hyper seasonal um vegetables so for me it's more about putting out the message that it's okay Um, You don't need to stress about when kale is in season because Mm most it's available all year round. And if you want to eat kale, you know, in the summer or whenever it's not in season, it's really okay. So it's really about making vegetables really, really accessible to everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. And to take away like a lot of the guilt that's that's involved Mm -hmm. sometimes and the the elitism um, that I feel Mm -hmm. myself, you know, when I see you know certain narratives about eating seasonally you should only eat seasonally and locally and all that stuff and to me i just i just think it's not how an everyday person really actually wants to cook or, or does mm-hmm.
0: cook. or is able to yeah completely but i mean i love even what you were just talking about which is this um making vegetables egalitarian and your commitment to sort of bringing vegetables to people. And that reminds me so much of your roots when you were using vegetables and making salads and delivering them on a bicycle. Um, I believe you started in Sydney and then did it for a little bit in Brooklyn. But I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, sort of how you initially literally used vegetables to build community.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, oh, it's such a Leslie it was so magical like it was Uh, I think back on it now and it was like it was 2011 I think mm -hmm. when I started making salads from my home in um a beautiful little neighborhood called Surrey Hills in Sydney and I cooked from home because that's that's legal in Sydney and um Mm -hmm them in little boxes they were all vegetable focused salads um vegetarian salads and I would bike them around to my local neighborhood and I think the first it was just this pie in the sky idea there was no social media that it was just screw from word of mouth um and I really wanted just to do something like at the time my kids were young and my youngest was I think one Um, and I just wanted to do something that was kept me rooted in the neighborhood and I thought hey, we have great food in the area where I live, but we didn't have a lot of like vegetarian salads. Mm. And I thought, hey, this could be a nice thing that I could do, you know, do something different. I had never really cooked um, before that. So really that business, which was called Arthur Street Kitchen, um, that the whole business taught me about cooking and taught me how Mm you know, put recipes together, put flavors together, put ingredients together. And I honestly believe salads are the greatest learning ground for flavor because when Mm. you think about um, the layering of flavor, the layering of texture, um, what, you know, herbs go with certain, you know, spices or vegetables um, Mm. and, you know, what, what nut would you pair with carrots or, you know, just, Every salad that I created was like a journey. Um, and that's when I really started like looking at food as a way of storytelling, because a lot of the food that I was cooking, actually, there was some Asian salads, but a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was like Mediterranean or Middle Eastern. And because I'd lived in London um, a few years prior to that, and it was kind of reflective of travel and the places we'd seen and the, the dishes that I mm. tasted. Um, and but that whole business really taught me how to cook and Mm. then you know um I made such wonderful friends they it's literally like you know street corner conversations the the best part of that Mm. business was actually the conversations was the people was meeting people in the community um you know becoming friends with them you know talking to them Mm. about their families their relationships the world It was just such a magical time um and then halfway kind of couple of years into the maybe a year or two into business people started asking for recipes so i started just kind of teaching myself how to write recipes Mm. um, and sharing them i just kind of emailed them to whoever wanted them um and then there was a week when i was delivering salads with i think it was like three or four people had said to me almost consecutively on on consecutive delivery they'd said you should write a cookbook and so I Mm -hmm. thought oh well the community wants me to write a cookbook so I did and and um yeah I mean that kind of started Mm. this entire chain of events which has really changed my life and I'd never thought I would write a cookbook I never that was never my intention um I never even thought I would the working in food or having you know any any of this really um but i've just yeah i kind of really found myself in food i found a voice um food has allowed me to reconnect with my culture my family myself in so many ways mm-hmm. and i'm still exploring you know there's still so many stories and, and aspects of um of storytelling around food that i'm still very excited to see where that leads so yeah and it's all thanks to this uh salad business
0: (laughs) i mean i love that story so much not only because it sounds like a literal fairy tale just the image of you riding around with your little bicycle with your salads on the back is just it, it does it sounds magical which is exactly how you describe it
1: and I always say I don't think that business could um ever happen now because mm. there is social media um and it's it's a different it was a such a different time because you know I started with I made little this is how I promoted myself Leslie I made mm-hmm. these little postcards with like a logo which i had created myself and I'm not a mm-hmm. I'm not a graphic designer and I went and dropped them off at like the real estate, the real estate where that we had bought the house and mm-hmm. um, a little grocery store. And I just, you know, dropped them to a few shop fronts and offices. And in the first week, I had like maybe four orders and two of them were my friends, two of the legitimate mm-hmm. orders. And then it just <laughs> word of mouth. People just mm-hmm. told each other about it. And, you know, in the end, I think I was really at capacity, you know, like I did about 80 salads a day. Um, wow. And I delivered all of them myself, literally on my push bike, which is not an electric push bike. It's an actual normal bike, um, <laughs> which I still have. I brought it with me to New York. Oh. and uh, But it was just one of those beautiful, it was like a time and a place, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't think it could ever be replicated because the world is so different now. But
0: <laughs> mm. How do you, I mean... How do you feel that we can almost try to get something close to that? Do you really think with social media that it's not possible to
1: get that same um, sort of feeling? I think it's a different community. I think they definitely yeah a community on social. Well, not social media. Well, not but, even on social. But yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think you know, like Substack has been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think social media has changed to you know like I think I started my social media there was actually one of my customers for Arthur Street Kitchen told me about it one day and she said oh there's this new thing called Instagram and it'd be really mm. cute if you you know took photos of, of during your deliveries and posted them so she was wow. the one that told me about it and I remember I got it and you know like it, it, social media was so different then because it really was instantly, like, oh, here's some bags of salads that I'm about to put on my bike. Mm-hmm. And you would never do that now. And I think mm-hmm. um, it's, I think over the years, because I've been on the platform, like so, Instagram for such a long time, um, it's been, I have been able to build a true community there um, because it's been slow and gradual and people have come to me because, They know me and they like what I do, and it's very much about the food. My Instagram is not about me or about anything else. It's really just Mm -hmm. about recipes and a platform Mm -hmm. for me to share the work that I've been doing. Um, And obviously that platform has changed a lot in the last Mm -hmm. few years, and I do feel like more of a – it's harder to communicate Mm -hmm. with my community Mm -hmm. there. and So then there's other platforms like Substack and, you know, Um, where it's a different type of engagement and um, it feels more intimate right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I say right now, because everything just changes so fast. Yeah. But there is, you know, in, in everyday life, I am always looking for ways of building community and I'm always Mm -hmm. looking for ways of building community that feel really true to who I am. Like Mm. I'm not like a big splashy person. Like I, um, I'm very personal i like to do things you know with small groups of people um mm-hmm. and actually at the beginning of this year i started hosting lunches um i don't publicize it i started hosting lunches mm. again because i was feeling like in you know late 2022 i was feeling like this real um emptiness like i need like i feel like there's something in food for me that's missing right now mm. um, it feels like a, a almost like a chasm like it's i feel like disconnected even though we're more connected than we've ever been in history i feel a disconnect and i think mm. it was a result of you know there was something i used to do when i first moved to new york i used to host people in my house all the time people often people I'd never met, people with friends of friends who thought, oh, hey, you're new to the city. People were so welcoming to me. and mm. I would say, Hey, come over for lunch. So I did that a lot. And it's how I made a lot of my friends in New York, um, who were still my friends, by having them over for a salad lunch. It was usually a salad that I made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that was taken away from us during COVID and um, we I just became like everyone you know like a different person you are much more cautious about having people over and and it's taken a long time to and not that we're even out of COVID yet but it took a long time to kind of recalibrate your brain to say it's okay Mm -hmm. to have people in your home and to eat together around a table and I identified that as really the thing that i felt like was missing from my life so since january Mm. i've been um every month at least i've been having um just small groups of friends over um Mm. and just having actually eating salads i've been cooking Mm. for them and and that's been um and i did one yesterday actually so it's been um, really Mm -hmm. really incredible to um there's nothing like it is mm-hmm. you're connecting with another person over food the conversation mm-hmm. each of these lunches are always different um yeah and always depending on you know the personalities around the table but there's nothing like it you know there's nothing mm-hmm. you can't connect in in any better way than sharing a meal because it's mm-hmm. the table is you know like this it's, it's like a unifier um mm-hmm. and, you know the fire and everyone just comes and <laughs> yeah. really good intentions of of speaking and learning about each other and and I think mm-hmm. that's that's the food and um mm-hmm. you know it's it's been great So and
0: the intimacy of hosting it in your own home. I yes. I've sort of been rediscovering that recently because I recently went through um, a separation from my husband and moved into a mm-hmm. studio. And I sort of felt like, Oh, because I'm in a studio, I can't really host. It's too small. It just, it doesn't feel like my home. And earlier this week I had some friends over for pasta and pasta is sort of my—you—you you have your salad, and I have my pasta. Like pasta is this like deeply grounding, um, like just very comforting food to me. Yeah. And yeah, and just having over some of the women in my life who I love for pasta—it is—it's so much more intimate when it's in your home because we go out to eat all the time, but cooking for them and inviting them over and having them in my space—it really. Yeah it's this different level of connection
1: i completely agree with you and i think that you know um home kind of took on different meanings over the last mm-hmm. few years and i'm in the same boat my house feels very small and mm-hmm. you know when the kids are here it just definitely feels like this there would be too many people so I, I usually try and do it when they're at school but it does, <laughs> it does feel like incredibly intimate to have people in our homes to see you know, my pictures on the walls to see my ornaments, mm. that, my plants. I don't know. It just it I completely get what you're saying. It feels incredibly intimate, but I was missing that. And I, I actually mm-hmm. love having people be a part of my life in that way. So mm-hmm. um, that's been really special to and to take the idea of to expand, because I think in the last few years, we everything we relied on online communities so much. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, it was amazing. Like we needed that, but I think that we almost forgot about human human connection and actual, you know, tactile. This is an actual person that I can, you know, touch mm-hmm. and and you know, put food on their plate and mm-hmm. um, you know, kiss them goodbye when they leave and all that stuff is just I'd miss that so much. Um, I think mm-hmm. we don't put enough value on human connection and and. Um, and the humanity of just eating together it's it's i i truly could not
0: agree more and you know i just i also i'm just i'm so i'm so inspired by the way in which you are so open to think like even looking at the course of your career and looking at your move from sydney to australia and i think did you live in london at one
1: point? i lived in london for um okay four years in the 2000s and my 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 oldest was born there and then we moved Mm. back to Sydney for um many years for about eight years and I had two more kids there and then we moved to we moved the young family to New York wow
0: okay so you're seasoned in community development and meeting people in a new place (laughs) yes I am (laughs) wow what was that like for you to move to new york and how did you you said that you know you met a lot of friends of friends but was there anything in particular that you did to because i this community seems so important to you to immediately you know ground yourself and establish
1: um i think it the 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 winter that we moved here was um winter of 2015 it was like one of the coldest Mm -hmm. winters in history in new york Mm -hmm. the top three coldest winters and (laughs) I was, you know, we'd just come from Sydney, so I was like, you know, we'd never really even seen snow before. Um, mm. It was shocking to me. So really, I just didn't want to go out. And so I stayed at home. Mm-hmm. I was writing my second book, Neighbourhood, at the time. Um, mm. And a lot of, actually, I didn't realise it at the time, but a lot of the salads that I was serving to people that came over are actually in that book. Um, mm. But yeah, people would, I didn't really know anyone in New York either. So um, Wow. A lot of people had reached out to me, maybe on via Instagram, or um, I'd met people that knew someone that I knew, and people made introductions, people, mm. and were, people were very um, happy to come meet me. And I think there was a one incident when someone had introduced me to another person, but I didn't. Neither of us knew this person, or it was all on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this was like early days of Instagram when it was still very innocent. Um, (laughs) And I don't know, I just felt really comfortable with having people over. And I think that is, it's almost like you need to have 10 coffee dates to have the level of intimacy as one lunch in your home. Mm. Those People that I met in those early days of um, being here in New York are still my closest friends in new
0: york
1: mm. you know one mm-hmm. of them yesterday to lunch it's um you know we don't see each other every single day we're not joined at the hip but they are still the people that i feel like they're my people in the city mm-hmm. um and most of them come from all over the place they're not native mm-hmm. new yorkers they're all transplants here and we all have this this kind of common uh, you know this common path as being kind of outsiders a little bit um mm-hmm. and yeah it's it's quite an incredible thing but yeah i I do think there is this incredible intimacy of having people at home and just being open to that um and i think since i've lived in new york i have been very open to to new people um but yeah i mean i think covid really kind of changed a lot of things and i'm trying to Mm. get most friends that i speak to it's like we're all trying to get back to the state where we remember we can go out we can have COVID, we can meet new people like Mm -hmm. you just meet less new people now because of COVID. Yes,
0: I completely agree. I mean, and, but at the same time, my experience really mirrored yours. I moved to Portland in the fall of 2020. And so of course, for that fall and winter, I didn't really meet anybody because Mm -hmm. the only people I was meeting, I didn't know anybody in Portland. And I would go on walking dates with people but you know six feet apart in mass there's not really a lot of room for intimacy there so i didn't really start making friends until i was able to go out to coffee dates until we were you know comfortable enough inviting people into my home and um but so many of the people i met were friends of friends or even people who had reached out over instagram or and just taking these like little seeds of connection and then sort of planting them. And, and now, yeah, I feel the same way where I can imagine myself 15 years down the line and saying these people who I met when I first met to move to Portland have become, yeah, my greatest friends. It's, it's
1: incredible to see. Yeah. It's
0: really
1: cool. And and you have Mm -hmm. to be open to it. I think that's one thing about Mm -hmm. moving around, um, I mean, I haven't moved that much, but I've had to reestablish myself. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. And you just have to kind of push yourself out of comfort zones and to be open. You have to kind of into mm-hmm. things with an open heart and know that, yes, some people you meet are not going to be your mm-hmm. best friends or maybe you'll, you'll never see them again, but they're still enriched your life in a certain way mm-hmm. you know you've met mm-hmm. someone else you've you've had a conversation um you're not going to be compatible with everyone but there's still something in that their humanity that you can take away I think so um completely yes
0: yeah. um I I just wanted to bring it back to your recipes for a little bit because <laughs> i <laughs>
1: Well, well so I can and, go off on tangents and, and you
0: know, I, No, and that's how I felt too. I was like, Oh my gosh, I just wanna keep talking about this with you forever. Um, but but it does relate because I think that you've been so creative and open in your life and your recipes speak to that. Your recipes, they they seem to pull from boundless sources of inspiration. Even just reading your recipe notes in Tenderheart, it's like, oh, this one was inspired by a photo that I saw in a vintage book. And this one was inspired by, you know, the snacks my dad used to make me, And this one was inspired by... I don't know, a sentence that a friend said to me. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, I guess in general or with recipes, what, what inspires you? What inspires this what I see as a truly boundless source of creativity—you have over what 180 recipes in this cookbook? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a big one.
1: It's over five. That is million. so many, Hetty. That is so many recipes. <laughs> I could have kept going. I mean, there's many vegetables that come <laughs> in chapter, so maybe there's like mm-hmm. a two coming or something. Uh-huh. But, I mean, honestly, I think the whole world is really my my inspiration. You know, there's nothing mm. that um, I've experienced I mean, it just comes to me in its way that my brain is wired. I've always got an ongoing list of ideas. Um, and sometimes it's just one spark. It's one um, a memory, you know, a lot of it's from memory um, that I want to recreate and I want to feel that way when I ate that particular dish. Mm. Um, and so, and it, and you know, the recipe that I create won't, will not be the same but it's enough to remind me of a time. And so food is like so evocative to me. It's, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's just the way I express myself. You know, people express themselves in different ways and I I like to cook and, and um, create. And almost like I bring together a lot of the experiences I've had in various recipes. Mm. I almost cook nothing traditionally. This is something mm-hmm. I realised. <laughs> uh, really traditional, you know, Cantonese food. And, uh, you know, I uh, rarely I mean, there's a couple of recipes into Asia with love it, that I cooked quite steadfastly to the way my mother did. But I almost don't do anything traditionally or, or mm-hmm. true to a base recipes because I always try and allow the recipes to be an expression of, of who I am, my unique experience. And that's where I think we can, because I think in food right now, there's just a lot of like sameness going on. And I think um, that's because we're all inundated with imagery all the time of videos and photos and videos and more videos Mm -hmm. people are just kind of recreating the same things which is fine Mm -hmm. but like that's not my role like i don't ever see my role as to be the person that recreates what everyone else is doing um i always want to speak very true to who i am as a person and the food truly represents my expression of what i want to be saying that particular day um a friend of mine said to me once she said your books are basically memoirs and i was like oh are they i'm like i'm not i don't want they're not meant to be memoirs but i guess there is an element of that in there because they are truly I've experience you know every book is kind of almost like this it captures who i am
0: mm-hmm
1: all the time. You know, I always say it's almost like your wedding guest list captured who mm-hmm. you were you were at that particular time. You don't keep in mm-hmm. contact with all the friends or whatever, but it, it is still like this kind of um, you know, like community captured who who I was at that time. A person learning to cook, a person loving to learning to love their community and, and getting so much from their community. And then all the subsequent books are just me uh, using food to kind of dive deeper into who I am personally and getting braver actually, but mm. f- finding more courage to perhaps tell the stories that make me uncomfortable about myself um, mm. and questioning myself more. And, like, you know, like when I say like Tender Heart was a book that I could never have written 10 years ago because I wasn't ready to confront. Mm-hmm feelings that I had um, and emotions that I had and, and all those things. So, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the, that's where my creativity comes from, is really like kind of allowing experiences in me personally and just being open to, to including my experiences in the recipes that I develop. And that's why the head notes are really important to me, because there's always a reason why I make something. I don't make something because mm-hmm. I just feel like it. There's always like some sort of connection even if it's a pasta recipe, it has some sort of connection to even a mm-hmm. time memory. Like I don't know what you mm-hmm. cooked for your friends the other night, you're always going to attach those whatever mm-hmm. you cooked to that moment, the how you felt when you had your friends over. Um, to me completely. That's, yeah, that's that's an emotion that I will put into a recipe.
0: Yeah. And even thinking about I cooked a recipe that's a pasta recipe from a restaurant that I used to love in Los Angeles because I lived there for five years. And even as you're saying that I'm recognizing, oh yeah, I cooked something that sort of represents a place that I'm from, that I know these friends haven't eaten because they've never lived there. And it's sort of bringing a piece, you know, even though it's not my recipe, it was a pasta from John and Vinny's in LA. And it's sort of me saying like, Oh, this is this place I'm from. This has been very comforting to me
1: since I first ate it. And now I'm bringing it to this oh, new yeah, space. Giving a part of yourself to them mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in kind of on the plate and, um, yeah, that's kind of where I always draw that inspiration from, and you know, look, mm-hmm. I know my my style of storytelling and recipe development is not for everyone. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. Like, some people are very much like, I don't want to be personal in my in what writing books or whatever, and that's fine. Like, um, I think mm-hmm. that's the joy of this industry, isn't it? Everyone um, is able to find inspiration and creativity in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I just. For me, I feel like my work is the best when I'm being really true to who I am, um, mm. and when I hold my food up to very high standards, and that's being truthful to who I am. It it's always better. Um, mm-hmm. and
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I just completely interrupted you. It's but... no, It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to ask you, because I know that we're sort of coming towards the end of our time here. And you've very generously offered to share two recipes in Morning Person Newsletter, one of which is your fennel gnocchi salad. And I was wondering if you could, you know, for the sake of and in the same vein of talking about where food comes from, just tell us a little bit about where that recipe came from and what it makes you think of.
1: Yeah, I mean, fennel is a vegetable that I did not grow up eating. Um, it's one of the, I'd say it's one of the vegetables I came to as an adult. And I don't remember the first time I ate it, but I'm assuming it was in an fennel and orange salad with olives. Mm. Like I'm just assuming, you know, that's when I started going out and choosing restaurants to eat it myself. Um, and it's one of those vegetables that I love so much because you, it's preferred raw in our house my kids like raw fennel they don't like cooked mm. fennel um and it's just it's one of those vegetables that goes a long way like most of the time I just you know use one big one or two small ones and it's really practical and to me in that particular recipe it's actually one of my favorite recipes in the book we eat it a lot mm. um and it's that one is just kind of like showing how to use All the different aspects of the fennel
0: yes I love that you use the fronds and the pesto yeah
1: like the fronds is like always like what do I do with the fronds and even if you keep some um, for the top or like to use as a herb it's a lot like sometimes when you buy an in-season fennel like it's got like a very bushy frond so Mm -hmm. um, the fennel frond pesto was something that I'd never thought of, but a friend of mine in Melbourne um, shared that she used her fennel fronds to make pesto. So I started doing it and I've tried lots of different versions of pesto. I mean, you know, you can really make a pesto in a lot of ways, um, but I like to just use basically like whatever I have on hand, like seeds, Um, often I'll use seeds and, you know, whatever nuts I have. But that recipe is so great because it uses, it's like, very minimal in terms of ingredients Um, but fennel really is your hero even though it's got gnocchi in there and it's you know any it's like your everyday gnocchi you don't have to go and make fresh (laughs) gnocchi um, because nobody does that during the week well I don't (laughs) Um, and so I wanted that recipe to be super approachable and to present a different idea about a vegetable that you may not have considered before and then maybe like take the frond idea and run with it and see what other things you can make with it just to kind of what I want to do in, with a lot of my recipes is like switch people's, the way they think about something. So hmm. um, think about the fronds as actually not, a, not waste and not something you're just going to automatically throw away, but think about it's like, oh, it's like a herb, like what can I do with this Uh, like I would do with parsley or dill or you know another herb that you might have so it's just really I wanted to show people like this is a legitimate part of the vegetable to use um but it's it's just so delicious it's a really oh my god hearty but it's one of the, the the things that I'm always trying to look for when I cook actually with vegetables and that's the majority of the, the recipes in, in Tenderheart is that they're like equal parts hearty, but with a lot of vegetables, if you know what I mean, because that's really mm-hmm. like a lot of these, and the way a lot of these recipes were developed was, I would say tonight, what have I got in the fridge? Oh, I have fennel and I have a packet of gnocchi. What am I gonna do with these two things? And mm-hmm. a lot of these recipes were developed in real time um with the real life situation of shit I have to make dinner for my family (laughs) what have I got what am I going to do with this that's going to make it a little bit interesting and different um and that's why I think there's a lot of the recipes in here are so creative because it is like you've got to think outside the box um Mm -hmm. and there is like as I was saying this equal parts really hearty but really kind of vegetable heavy too that's what I really tried to do um, in this book because that's how I create that's how I cook right now for my family because you know I've got Mm. three teenagers um, and they're hungry and they need they need a lot of food but I also don't want it just to be you know they do like carbs but I want Mm. to balance that with Vegetables. So, yeah, I think that recipe is a really good representation of that.
0: Hedy, you said it yourself. This recipe and this cookbook, Tenderheart, is just so full of truly inspirational and creative recipes and unbelievably touching stories. I mean, the first thing I did was read it before I even cooked anything from it. It's really beautiful. And I just I so appreciate you taking the time to come on to this podcast and to chat with us and to share all of your insights about building community and building recipes. This hour just flew by, but it's been so wonderful to speak with you.
1: Really did. I mean, we could talk for probably another few hours. Um.
0: <laughs> oh, completely. Yes. We didn't even get into half of the things that I wanted to talk to.
1: Again, Hetty McKinnon's wonderful
0: new cookbook, Tender Heart, is available today. I truly can't recommend it enough, and you can read the rest of this interview over on morningpersonnewsletter.com and access, of course, her recipes for fennel frond pesto gnocchi and eggplant brownies. They are as delicious as they sound.